0: Surviving for 10 days by eating each other. A brutal gust of wind strikes the plane. We're dropping ever lower, rolling from side to side in newer and scarier ways, when suddenly the g force sucks back our stomachs and flattens out our internal organs like offal on a dinner plate as we surge into a steep last minute climb. Confident now that he's given the Red Baron the slip, our man is back on the PA, but sounding strangely low-key and matter-of-fact. Well, as you can see, we were unable to land at Gibraltar. We'll keep you posted. Ten minutes later, we're dropping down over calm sea and pristine beach to land in Tangier, which is where I want to be tomorrow, but not today. And, can I ask you, please, not to use mobile phones while we're refuelling. The the Winnie-the-Pooh businessman immediately gets out his mobile and phones Kirsty at head office to tell her she can't call him with any messages as we're on the runway at Tan Bloody Jeer and aren't allowed to use mobiles for safety reasons. The call continues for about seven minutes. As he snaps the phone shut, he throws a defiant look in my direction for listening to his conversation. There is an unspoken agreement that requires us all to collaborate in the pretense that we are unable to hear the conversations and monologues that other people are having into their mobile phones. In one of the more unpredictable shifts in British social behaviour of the last decade, a hitherto reticent nation has taken to shouting intimate details of its social, emotional and sexual life into the faces of complete strangers, who are required to pretend that they aren't there and haven't heard. Under no circumstances must you acknowledge your existence by joining in and saying, What a coincidence, I'm on a train too. It's early evening as the ferry leaves Algeciras under a cover of grey cloud with a late winter chill in the air. I seem to be the only English speaker on board, apart from a backpacker across the bar who's reading a novel called Backpack. This is depressing. Surely he can think of other ways to enrich his gap year. The idea of arriving in Africa by ferry was to help me feel a spiritual connection with the traders and smugglers, pirates and soldiers who have been navigating these legendary straits for countless millennia. The exotic atmosphere of this floating bazaar would give me time to prepare myself for the ancient mysteries of the Kasbah. I'm reminding myself of this as I sit in a harshly lit plastic and vinyl bar, listening to Phil Collins, surrounded by screaming children, and drinking a small gin and tonic that's just cost me more than a litre of duty-free. We're heading for a Muslim country, so I'm the only one drinking alcohol. The bar closes as we approach Tangier, and I go for a walk on deck. Even though it's dark, I can see the white buildings of the old town, the Medina, framing the port like an amphitheatre. The taxi drive to the hotel feels like a scene from an exotic film noir. The streets of the port are lined with decaying hotels and cafes, their pavement tables full even on a winter's night. The air hangs heavy with the promise of adventure, intrigue and the thrill of the unknown. I suspect that, whatever your purpose, arriving in Tangier by night will make you feel that you've come to the right place. It's after ten when I drop the bag in my hotel room and hit the streets. The boulevards of the fin de siècle new town are thronged with men promenading and packed into cafes watching football on TV. The astonishing thing for a visitor from Britain, apart from the absence of women, is the fact that it's Saturday night and all these men are sober. I've walked several hundred yards and no-one has urinated in a shop doorway or thrown a litter bin across the street while singing No Surrender to the IRA. It's hard not to feel a faint pang of nostalgia for the colourful traditions of small-town England. In a snack bar that's trying to be a restaurant... I order a seafood pizza, then ask for the wine list. Pardon, says the waitress, pas d'alcool. I'm faced with the distressing prospect of eating pizza without the wine that's the only way of making it seem like food. Surely the only point of pizza's existence is to encourage the consumption of cheap red wine.' Unspeakable rot-gut that would otherwise end up in Andalusian pickle jars and Romanian cigarette lighters tastes like premier cru when accompanied by a pepperoni and chilli thin crust with extra garlic. Looks like it'll have to be water then. Back in my room, the dough still expanding inside me, I combat the pizza afterburn and heart palpitations with a glass or two of the wittily named Spanish brandy Soberano. Strange chanting and the cries of cockerels float across the night sky to my palm-fronded balcony as I sit propped up in bed, glass of brandy in hand, and consider the strange series of events that have conspired to bring me here tonight. When I was a kid, I couldn't understand how Irish aristocrats with Irish names who lived in big houses in Ireland came to be sitting in the British House of Lords. Nor did I have any real notion of an ancient Gaelic aristocracy. But I do remember my uncle telling me when I was over in West Cork on holiday that McCarthy was a royal name and we were descended from ancient high kings of Ireland. Nothing special about that, mind... Everybody else called McCarthy was royal too, which, from what I knew about Ireland in those days, West Cork basically, meant about 80% of the population. So it came as a surprise when, some years later, a BBC radio producer told me that I had a clan chief to whom I owed my allegiance. But the head of the McCarthy family, he said, was not Irish. He was a Moroccan who lived in Tangier and was known as the McCarthy Moor. Fantastic, I thought a moor, like Othello. We discussed it over a few pints and decided that the original McCarthy's must have been a nomadic tribe from North Africa, who sometime in prehistory had, like the Celts, emigrated north to Ireland. Over Singapore noodles and a couple of bottles of wine, we further deduced that the unaccustomed moistness of the Irish climate must have broken down their dark, sun-beaten, nomadic skin pigment, a kind of genetic rusting process that led inevitably over the centuries to red hair and freckles. And so it was that I began to tell anybody who'd listen that the ancient kings from whom I was descended were Moroccans, and that one day I would travel to Morocco and share a water pipe and a bowl of couscous with the moor himself. Another thing I found difficult to understand as a kid was that there were still lots of people living in Ireland, even though so many had gone away to other places. Growing up midway between Liverpool and Manchester, with one English and one Irish parent, there often seemed to be more Irish about the place than there were in Cork itself. Everyone I knew seemed to have a parent or a funny old pissed-up grandad or an auntie with a moustache who was always saying the rosary, somebody at any rate to tie them into an awareness of an Irish past and a consequent shared cultural identity. Even though you had a flat Lancashire accent and were immersed in English pop music and politics and sport and literature, part of you was always aware of coming from, if no longer belonging to, another tribe. When England played Ireland at rugby, it was impossible to know who to support, because either way you'd feel like a traitor. Should you cheer for the land of your birth and accent and your dad against the poor, downtrodden, colonised, persecuted underdogs while your mammy fought back the tears on the other side of the room? Or did you go for the romance of oppression, the pride of a displaced nation in exile, and your cousin singing Kevin Barry at a family wedding, and turn your back on the country that had made you what you were, given you freedom and prosperity and friendships, Shakespeare, the small faces and the who? These were impossible choices. Religion was part of the identity. Every priest and nun you came across talked with an Irish accent, just like your uncles and aunties. I was aware on an intellectual level that the Catholic Church was in some way Roman and therefore inherently Italian, but as far as I could make out, in practice, it had been comprehensively hijacked by the Irish. There were other connections reinforcing our links with the homeland where we'd never lived. The John McCormack records, the Irish dancing lessons at primary school, and the two parcels that arrived without fail every year. The first, a small box delivered on or about the 15th of March, contained the St. Patrick's Day shamrock. The second, arriving days before Christmas, was a plucked turkey in a hessian sack. No box, no letter, no fancy wrapping. Just a sack, with stamps on, and a huge naked turkey inside. It's probably illegal now to send nude poultry through the post, though I believe there is a shop in Amsterdam that will send you photographs. Even as a kid... I can remember thinking there was a wonderful deadpan humour about living in the UK with our central heating and motorways and